The stats say it all. People who graduate from university have, on average, better health, better life expectancy, and better earnings than those who don't. They're also more insulated from unemployment. In the two years following the 2008 financial crisis, unemployment jumped to as high as 7.5% for people with a high school degree. But for people with a bachelor's degree and higher, unemployment stayed well below 5%. From a macro point of view, young people with college degrees contribute to a higher skilled and ideally more productive labor force. And with higher earnings come higher taxes, so university graduates add substantial fiscal income. So it's a no-brainer. Send more people on to higher education. But here's the problem. A lot of students and families just can't afford it. If you look at one of the OECD's Education at a Glance chart from 2021, it shows how much students and families spend on higher education. It's shown as a percentage of the country's total spending on higher education and covers 35 countries. The chart starts at the left with Denmark and Sweden, where families spend nothing or close to nothing on higher education, and it steadily trends upwards until we reach New Zealand, Korea, Mexico, United States, United Kingdom, Australia, Japan, and Chile. In Chile, it's mostly families who pay for over 56% of the country's total bill on higher education. And, except for Mexico, these are the same countries that put comparatively the least amount of public money into higher education. I'm Clara Young, and I work in the OECD's Education and Skills Directorate, and I'm talking today to Lorraine Dearden, who is Professor of Economics and Social Statistics in the Social Research Institute at University College London. Thanks for speaking to us today, Lorraine. It's my pleasure. So the prognosis on public funding for higher education doesn't look great, Uh, The OECD notes in our report, the state of higher education one year into the COVID-19 pandemic, that it's already gone down in the U.S. by 1.8% this year compared to the previous year. Yeah, I mean, it's it's a problem happening worldwide. I mean, COVID has meant that public resources, uh, you know, need to be used for other things. And of course, one one place where it's being hit is in terms of higher education funding. So there's been, as always, but it seems to be increasing um, the debate on free tuition. I guess that makes the free tuition uh, possibility look ever less possible. And and is it even a a good idea anyway? Well, well, as most people know, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Nothing is free what free higher education is taxpayer funded higher education so it's not free it's got to be funded by somebody and the problem is that when it falls on taxpayers and there's a crisis like covid it means that funding for universities and other sectors that rely on taxpayer funding are going to be squeezed so so we either have to ration higher education, drop spending per pupil, or we have to find resources elsewhere. And uh, it's either from families or it's from graduates later when they're in the labour market earning money. So it's got to be found somewhere. And I think what I care about is how do you fund higher education 
in a fair and equitable way. And I think the way you do that is you make higher education free at the point of access. So there's no question of anybody not being able to go to higher education because they don't have the money. But the quid pro quo is that on in general, as you say, higher education graduates earn more than most people, have better health, have much better outcomes. So they're in a much better position once they're in the labour market to make a contribution if they do well out of the system. I think free in terms of taxpayers funding it is inequitable because half of students don't go to university. So it's being paid by those who don't benefit, but making it free at the point of access, but ensuring that those graduates who do best in the labour market contribute later. When you were talking about uh, free at the point of access, could you go into that? I mean, because this brings us to the student loan issue. And and I have friends who are still paying off their student loans. And the debt load can be quite big and quite stressful, especially now with a, a lot of people, especially young people who are losing their jobs because of the pandemic or who have suddenly got the financial rug pulled out from under their feet because somebody in their family uh, who is helping them with their student loans in some cases, has lost their job or even lost their life because of COVID. So could we go into this whole student loan situation, especially now? Okay, so so even if university is free, students need money to live, particularly those from poor economic backgrounds. So student loans are a part of a system, whether there's free higher education, taxpayer fund, fully taxpayer funded or not. And loan design is crucial. And There's two types of student loans. There's the situation in the US where it's like a mortgage. So a Stafford loan is the typical loan in the US. You borrow the average loan in the US is around $30,000. But they have to pay it back over a fixed term, 10 years, regardless of their economic circumstances. So if you don't have a job, you still have to pay back every month your student loan. And of course... That is why the US system is in crisis, because at any one time, about 20, you know, 10 to 20 percent of graduates aren't in a job, either because they're having children, finding a job. And if something like COVID hits, then, you know, just because of bad luck, you cannot pay your student loan. That wrecks wrecks your reputation, means the government who funds these loans loses money because the students default. And it's very expensive and damaging for both students and taxpayers. To, to jump in and, and uh, to talk about that is is the, the U.S. is one of the, the countries that, you know, relaxed student loan repayments in 2020 because of because of the pandemic. But that moratorium is coming to an end at the end of um, January 2022. So what's going to happen in that landscape of these time based repayment loans when all that starts to come back up again? It's going to be a disaster. Um, and, you know, many students are going to be ruined because of it. their rep- credit reputation wrecked. It's very hard to get right because not everybody lost out in the pandemic, but this moratorium you know, was for everybody. So it's not particularly well targeted. It's not going to solve the solution. The, the solution is designing student loans that have built in insurance to cope automatically if things go wrong. And, and things do go wrong. You know, people have children. They um, 
their parents get sick, they need to stop work. I mean, you know, stuff happens which nobody can predict and COVID is the perfect example of that. And it's disastrous if the student loans aren't designed properly. And, and you know, that disaster could be quite quite a quite an enormous one because according to the US federal student loan portfolio, student debt totaled just under one point six trillion dollars in the second quarter of this year. So that's that's ahead of uh, credit card and auto loans. And and, and around thirty percent of loan holders are either in defaulted or you know not up to date with payments. It's it's huge. And these are taxpayer backed student loans. So so who ultimately pays? is taxpayers it costs tax it's expensive but it ruins the lives of these students they can't borrow for a home they you know their credit reputation's wrecked it serves nobody any any good and it needn't be like that you can design student loans that have built-in insurance are cheap to run and which have better taxpayer returns and those systems operate imperfectly, but they operate pretty well in the UK, Australia. And um, I'm very glad to say that Colombia, two, two days ago, passed legislation. They'll be operating in Colombia within the next six months. So, so you can design student loans. I've got a 23-year-old son who graduated from university last year and there was no job. So, you know, he actually decided to go off and do a master's for a year, but that with an income contingent loan, because he wasn't earning money, you know, he had to worry about, you know, finding a job and all the other things about the pandemic, but he did not have to worry about having to pay his student loan. Could could we go into these income contingent loans? Could you could you explain to us exactly what that is? So unlike a mortgage type loan, what an income contingent loan does is it makes you pay a proportion of your earnings every month when you earn above a minimum threshold. So the idea is if you're on low earnings, you know, any payment of a loan is going to impact on your disposable income. So you, you don't want to do that. You want to make sure a person's got a basic income where they can live and you know, expend on the important things. But above a certain threshold in, in the UK, it's around £25,000. Every pound you earn over £25,000, you pay 9% of your earnings. You don't have to do anything. When you take out the loan, you give them your national insurance number. When you get a job, your employer is told this person has a student loan. When you take off their income tax and their social security payments, take off 9% of their earnings above 25000 and it's done. You don't have to do anything else. So if you lose your job, you don't get paid, you pay nothing. So the way it works is that it's not over a fixed time, right? So it's it's a pro fixed proportion of your income. So in the UK, it can never get more than 9% of your income. So, so there's never any repayment hardship. Yes, you get less disposable income. But what varies is the length of time over which you pay the loan. So, you know, if you're in a high paying job, you'll just pay it quicker than you would say in the US system. But if you're not so well off, you pay it over a longer period. And in the UK, after 30 years, if you haven't paid it off, it's just written off. That's part of the government subsidy for higher education. So it's got built in insurance and it means nobody ever faces repayment hardship.
So these uh, are the kinds of loans uh, that have just been implemented in Colombia that you were talking about earlier? They've just passed legislation in Colombia and they'll be implemented uh, next year. They operate in New Zealand, they operate in Australia, Hungary, the Netherlands. In the US, there is income-based repayment loan systems, but it's not like the Australian or UK system. It's, it's very burdensome. You, you report your income at the end of the year and then you pay later, whereas in Australia and New Zealand, it's just done automatically. It's proper insurance. If you're, you're employed this month and you're earning and you're above the equivalent of £25,000 a year, you pay something, you're unemployed the next month, you pay nothing. So the insurance means that if you can't pay, you don't. Uh, one thing that I, I would, I'm curious about is that why do not uh, more governments put in this kind of system of loans for higher education? Um, I think they worry that it won't work. And uh, you know, it's been in operation in Australia now since 1988. It works. Other arguments is that, you know, it won't work in their country. Our country's different. You know, it would, it would never work. Um, the US was sort of saying, you know, it would never work because the everybody hates the IRS. And uh, But, you know, the, the, there's a social security systems. In Colombia, the arguments we faced was, oh, we've got such a big informal labour market. It could never work in Colombia. So when I went there uh, three years ago, I said, can you get the data? So they got the data on all their loan holders. And yes, at any one point in time, around 30% of graduates are not in the formal labour market, but we've followed them through for 10 years. And you can see that 96% of their loan holders have been in the formal labour market. They move in and out. And we can show that you can design a system that will collect more revenue for the student loan companies, will not put students under financial pressure and uh, will not wreck their credit reputation. So we're hoping we can demonstrate in a country like Colombia, it can be done. I mean, every country is different. You've got to make choices about how much subsidy the government wants to do. I mean, you can design loan systems where it fully repays itself, which means you have to make a highest earning graduates cross-subsidise low earning graduates because people who never have a job will pay nothing with an income contingent loan. But most student loan systems in the world, we, we see the US, involve significant taxpayer subsidies. But the beauty of this is you can design a system which is progressive, incredibly cheap to administer. I mean, Australia has a population of 20 million and the number of people running their income contingent loan system at the Australian tax office is 15, one five. It's so administratively efficient. Why is it so administratively efficient? Through employer withholding. So, you know, employers already take off tax and in Australia, Medicare. So the actual transaction of taking off uh, in Australia, it's between one and 8% of total income and sending it to the tax office is virtually zero. And that's how it's done. 
I'm curious about the example of uh, South Korea, because I think in South Korea, they put uh, through income contingent loan, student loans in, well, I think it was 2010. And and I read uh, in a newspaper there that uh, three out of 10 graduates still default, even though they have these kinds of loans. What's going on there? Well, it can't be a proper income contingent loan, which is done through employer withholding. Because you cannot, you, you, you cannot default. It, what happens is if you get a job in Australia or the UK, the employer is told this student, this person has a student loan, you must pay this to the tax office. So, you know, you can't default. There's no such thing in, as default with an income contingent loan. I imagine in South Korea, it was based on the student having to report their income and then retrospectively pay the loan based on what they earned. And it involves the government trying to get the money from them. So, so the insurance mechanism is lost and the collection, the efficient collection mechanism is lost. Um, the UK government right now is mulling over the idea of lowering the income level at which people start repaying their student loans. Is that is that a good idea? Well, I, I mean, you know, I think income contingent loans are a good idea. I don't think the whole higher education funding package in the UK is very sensible. And, you know, I could go on all day. Firstly, in the UK, if you go to a university, you get a loan for your fees and you get a loan for living costs. But if you pursue other higher education vocational routes, you get nothing. And the sector is very badly funded. So in the UK, we've got, I think, a lot of people attending university simply because they can get funding and, you know, they can live rather than because it was probably the course that they really wanted to do. And I think a lot of people who wanted to go through it down technical routes and would have don't in the UK because there's not proper funding for that. So I think in the UK, the balance is not quite right. Also, there's just one fee for every course, so £9,000, but there's a queue to get into university. So a lot of universities, there's an incentive to put on cheap, popular courses, which are cheap to run, like business courses. And so I think the government's got the sort of funding formula a bit wrong. In Australia, it's better. They have different fees for different types of courses and then different government subsidies for universities for different courses. So something like nursing which there's a shortage of, but is expensive to run. It has one of the cheapest fees, but gets a lot more direct government funding for the universities to cover cover the cost. Whereas something like law and economics in Australia, which is cheap, they're cheap to run, but very popular. The government virtually gives universities very little money and the fees are higher. So I think you need a hybrid system which ensures that the right portfolio of courses is offered. There's not an incentive for universities to just put all their eggs in the courses which make them the most money. So so in the UK, basically, universities get no money for arts and humanities courses. It's all from fees. And the only courses that they do get direct funding from the government are things like medicine and dentistry, the expensive ones, so that the fees can be kept down. But the the margin for universities for providing those courses is very small. So they limit numbers. So 
The UK, because fees are so high, £9,000 per year, and because of the nature of the income contingent loan, there's a 45% government subsidy for the loan system because most 80% of students will never repay their student loan because they just never earn enough to repay it. And that is not sustainable because there's been a huge expansion in higher education. So the government's got to get the money back from somewhere. So, so the way they're going to do that is to lower the threshold so that they reduce that subsidy. That kind of brings us uh, to the question about the balance between public and private sharing of the costs of, of higher education. And I'm kind of coming at this question backwards, because, of course, in the news lately, there's the U.S. government uh, recently pardoning loans, student loans from people uh, for people who work in the public sector. You know, what is the right balance? You know, when somebody is going in to university, uh, there's grants and tuition waivers. What is the balance between public and private? I think income-based repayments were initially introduced in the US by the Clintons, who observed the fact that graduate lawyers, you know, have to pay a huge amount in fees and had prohibitive loans. And that discouraged people from working in the public sector, in public sector law, because on that salary, they could not afford to pay back their loans. So, so it was driving the people that they wanted to do public sector law jobs because, you know, from, from doing what they wanted because they had to pay back their loans. So I actually think there is a good argument for, in any loan system, you know, for nurses and teachers or shortage occupations. If people sort of, you know, go into teaching and spend 10 years in the public sector being a teacher, I think there's a, you know, a perfectly good reason for forgiving their loans to encourage people who are taking lower salaries to do publicly worthwhile jobs that are in shortages, I think is a solution. I mean, it's much more urgent in the US because, as I said, for, for certain public sector jobs, on the salaries, you cannot pay your, repay your loans. Whereas with an income contingent loan, that's never the case. I mean, if you go in a low earning lawyer job, your student loan's not going to cripple you. But even with an income contingent loan, I think there are some good reasons, particularly for shortage occupations, to say, you know, if you stick with us and, you know, stay in the, as a teacher for 10 years, then, you know, we'll forgive your loan. Well, that was a very, very interesting conversation. And I think we'll all look more closely at income contingent loans and maybe rethink free tuition, the free tuition debate. Thank you very much, Lorraine. Thank you. And thank you for listening to OECD's Top Class Podcast. I'm Clara Young. To find out more about the OECD's work on education skills, find us on Twitter. Our handle is at OECD EDU skills. <laughs>